0: Our lesson today is from the book of Daniel, chapter 7. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. And four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had an eagle's wings. After this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn... eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened." And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious, and the visions of my head alarmed me. I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all this. So he told me, and made known to me the interpretation of all th- all the things. These four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth, but the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever, and ever. Let us pray. Our Father, we have heard wonderful things out of thy word. We praise you for revealing Christ by promise and shadow in these pages. Help us to understand these words for thy name's sake. Amen.
1: Beloved, our New Testament lesson today comes from Revelation 19, verses 1 through 16. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, "Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. For his judgments are just and true. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, Alleluia, the smoke, from her, the smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God, who was seated on the throne, saying, Amen, Alleluia. And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, You must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. he will tread on the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Let us pray. Our Father, we have heard wonderful things out of thy word. We praise you for revealing Christ as the fulfillment of the Old Testament and ask you to give us your spirit so that we may understand the fullness of your truth. Amen.
2: Well, as you've gathered from the Old Testament lesson this morning, the second half of the book of Daniel is a lot different from the first half. Now, the first six chapters of Daniel recount the career of the Hebrew prophet, including a number of events associated with Daniel and his three Hebrew comrades, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Also, two Babylonian kings, Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar, and even one Persian king, Darius the Mede, also known as Cyrus. Now, the second half of the book of Daniel, chapter 7 through 12, opens with a dramatic vision given by Yahweh to Daniel that actually maps out the next six centuries of ancient Near Eastern history. Yet, in the following chapters, Daniel continues to recount some of the most fantastic and difficult visions in all of the Bible. But the literary hinge between these two halves of Daniel is clearly chapter 7. In fact, one writer puts it this way. He says, this is the single most important chapter in the book of Daniel. And chapter 7 includes what yet another writer describes as the key to history. Now, these are grandiose comments, but after we've spent some time in this chapter, I think you'll see why these opinions are appropriate. Because the vision given in Daniel chapter 7 points us to a mysterious figure, one like a son of man, who is indeed the key to understanding all of human history. Now, Daniel's vision of four strange beasts, as recorded in chapter 7, covers the same time frame in human history, the 5th century roughly to the 1st century roughly, as the vision that Yahweh had previously given to Nebuchadnezzar. That was recounted back in Daniel chapter 2. But this vision is Yahweh's revelation of the all-conquering king, Jesus, around whom all of human history ultimately centers. The subsequent visions given Daniel in chapters 8 through 12 speak of the great empires that arise after Babylon falls. That would be the Persian and the Greek and the Roman empires, while also foretelling of the rebuilding of Jerusalem after the Jewish exiles return home from Babylon and the rise of an antichrist figure who is this blaspheming little horn who is the arch enemy of God's people. And then these visions go on to take us forward to the end of the age and to the general resurrection when all the dead, believing and unbelieving, are raised bodily on the day of final judgment. So to make some sense of this, to help us make some sense of this, I included a chart in your bulletin. One side has the structure of Daniel, the other side has the identity of some of the creatures we've seen in these various visions. Now as we return to our series on Daniel, this week and next we're going to explore in some detail this amazing vision given Daniel by Yahweh while Belshazzar was in the first year of his reign as king of Babylon. That was the year 550 BC which also happens to be the very same year that a relatively unknown Persian king named Darius became leader of the Medo-Persian Empire eventually taking the royal name Cyrus. And that empire will conquer Babylon in 539, which we saw back in chapters 5 and 6 of Daniel. Now, the first half of the book of Daniel tells the story of Daniel's life in exile and his service in the royal court from the time he's kidnapped from his home in Judah, about 605 B.C., until late in his life, 539 B.C., when he served as trusted advisor first to Nebuchadnezzar and then to Cyrus. Now Daniel served the latter toward the end of his own life when the Persian king was beginning to wrestle with this political question, at least to him it was political, what do I do with this sizable population of Jews living as exiles in Babylon but who are growing anxious to return to their homeland and rebuild their capital city Jerusalem and their temple uh, in, in Jerusalem? So the central message throughout the first half of Daniel is that Yahweh is sovereign, "...over the affairs of kings and empires, seen in the fact that he gave his prophet Daniel gifts of the Spirit to not only protect him from harm while he's in exile, but to interpret the dreams that Yahweh gave to the leaders of that very same nation, Babylon, which Yahweh used to punish his disobedient people Israel, before Yahweh brings down the Babylonian empire because of its ongoing persecution of the people of God, but more importantly babylon's zeal in worshiping false gods and so the first half of daniel ends at the end of chapter six with daniel returning to the royal court near the end of his life this time serving a persian king in the period immediately before cyrus issues his decree to allow the jews to return home to jerusalem Now, the second half of Daniel, chapter 7 to 12, opens with this dramatic night vision given Daniel by Yahweh, likely at a time about 550 B.C., when Daniel is no longer officially serving in the Babylonian court. So he's retired. And what do retired prophets do? They have visions. Um, Nebuchadnezzar died in 562. And there's no mention that Daniel served among the counselors, who, uh, of the leaders who arose after Nebuchadnezzar or even during the time of Belshazzar. In fact, there's no mention of Daniel at all appearing at court until the now elderly prophet was summoned from retirement by a drunken Belshazzar on the night in 539 BC when Yahweh crashed Belshazzar's blasphemous and sacrilegious party and announces immediate judgment upon the king and his empire through this mysterious handwritten message on the wall of the palace that only Daniel could read. And so the words of warning, many, many Tekel Parson proclaimed the immediate death of Belshazzar and the fall of the Babylonian Empire to the Persians that same very evening, uh, an event which was foretold in that dream given to Babylon's king Nebuchadnezzar all the way back in Daniel chapter 2 a vision given a generation earlier, and a vision which only Daniel could interpret. Now, in the first half of Daniel chapter 7, the first 14 verses, and we're going to cover that part of the chapter this morning, Daniel recounts the first vision given him by Yahweh, which in many ways closely parallels the dream Yahweh gave to Nebuchadnezzar earlier. Only this dream focuses upon the identity of the mysterious rock, that rock not cut by human hands, that rock which eventually smashes the metallic statue that represented the four great world empires that Nebuchadnezzar had seen. The vision given Nebuchadnezzar covers this large swath of human history from the fall of the Babylonian Empire in 539 to the rise of three successive world empires, each of which overcomes its predecessor, Babylon, the head of gold, Persia, the chest of silver, The Greek Empire, the Bronze Legs, which under Alexander the Great and his successors, the Seleucids, ruled over Judah until the time of the greatest of empires, Rome, the feet of iron mixed with clay. But in Daniel's vision of chapter 7, these great world empires are not represented by precious metals, but instead by fierce creatures, some real, some imaginary. The mysterious rock is now given a personal identity, one like a son of man, a figure whom the New Testament frequently and unanimously identifies as Jesus Christ, the Son of Man, who's identified by none other than our Lord Himself in the Olivet Discourse, a text you may recall we considered as the background to our study of the book of Daniel. Now, in that discourse in Matthew chapter 4, verses 29 through 31, Jesus told his disciples of a time, quoting Jesus now. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call. And they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. And so then the key to understanding Daniel's vision here is to realize that Jesus identifies himself for us. And that fact is confirmed given that Daniel 7 is either cited or alluded to over 50 times in the New Testament. Most of them occurring, of course, in the book of Revelation. Now, six centuries before our Lord's incarnation, the womb of the Virgin, through the power of the Holy Spirit, Daniel sees the heavenly glory of that rock seen by Nebuchadnezzar, who will crush all the kingdoms of the earth, and his own kingdom will, in fact, never come to an end. And so, with that in mind, then we turn to our text itself in Daniel 7, and in the opening verse, we learn something which we have assumed all along, That Daniel is the author of this book. Now, Daniel writes In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Now, the prophetic dream is written down by Daniel, as found in Daniel 7. And although he's speaking in the third person, like Bob Dole used to do, um, given the similarities between this chapter and the rest of the prophecy, There's no doubt that Daniel is the author of this entire book, despite efforts of the critical scholars to date this book in the second century B.C., after many of the things in chapters 7 to 12 have already come to pass, because critical scholars are just not going to accept any miraculous event, including predictive prophecy like that found here in the second half of Daniel, and for such critics, Daniel's bad history, not prophecy. Yet Daniel informs us that the content of his vision is prophetic in nature, that it's going to foretell future events, even though it's apocalyptic in terms of its literary style or its genre. Well, what's apocalyptic? Well, apocalyptic is an ancient literary style that uses highly symbolic language to describe a current struggle between God's people and those who oppress them yet which is also designed to encourage God's people in the midst of their trials by reminding them that God is sovereign and in control of all things, even when events may look as though God is absent, or that God has forgotten about us, or that God is even harshly judging his own people. Now, oftentimes, the symbols used by the writers contrast a present struggle facing the people of God with a future struggle when things are finally... hidden things, secret things are finally revealed. And so oftentimes what's foretold in Daniel's vision is actually unpacked and then explained in the book of Revelation, describing these events now from the perspective of our Lord's death and resurrection. So the scope of the vision is revealed by Daniel beginning in verses 2 to 3. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night... And behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and four great beasts came out of the sea different from one another. Well, that's very similar to Zechariah's so-called night visions. We know that from the opening chapter of Zechariah, which also refer to the four winds of heaven. And that's an apocalyptic image of the four points of the compass, north, south, east, and west. Same thing in Revelation chapter 7, verse 1. The sea, which is stirred up by the wind, is another common apocalyptic image of a mysterious and frightening realm of danger or storm or tempest. And the sea was thought to be the abode or the home of the dragon. And the dragon, of course, is Satan. Isaiah says in chapter 17 of his prophecy that the nations are like the sea, that is is, they're in constant turmoil and upheaval. And the psalmist reminds us in Psalm 103 that the Lord alone has the power to restrain the chaos of the waters. Well, in verse 4, Daniel describes the first creature he sees. The first was like a lion. It had eagle's wings. And then as they looked, its wings were plucked off. And it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. And the mind of a man was given to it. Well, if you've been to the museums in uh, London or in Berlin, you know that the winged lion is a symbol of Babylon. And the Old Testament prophets commonly describe Nebuchadnezzar and his empire as like that of a lion. Eagle's wings enable this creature to move quickly, which is likely a reference to the rapid growth of the Babylonian empire under Nebuchadnezzar. But the wings are plucked off, and that reminds us that that expansion came to a very quick halt. Now think back to Daniel chapter four, because the reference to a man's mind being given the creature recalls to mind the fact that Nebuchadnezzar lost his mind after that second vision that Yahweh gave him in Daniel 4, only to be restored to his sanity a bit later. And so the humanizing of this fierce beast is a kind of a veiled indication of this empire eventually weakening in its power. And so the first beast is clearly a symbolic reference to the Babylonian empire just as the image of the golden head had been in the metallic statue in the vision of Daniel chapter 2. Now the second creature is described in verse 5. And behold, another beast, a second one like a bear. It was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And it was told, arise, devour much flesh. Well, bears like lions were considered dangerous predators and weren't uncommon at that time throughout the local mountains and foothills, just as they used to be in the Santa Ana mountains over here. Uh, The image Daniel sees is of a bear raised up on one side as though preparing to lunge, although this may mean that the bear is being raised up by the one who rules the universe, Yahweh. Following the same order as that of Nebuchadnezzar's dream, then the bear is clearly the Persian empire now raised up by God, to displace the Babylonian empire, just as Daniel will eventually witness with the death of Belshazzar and the Persian capital of Babylon, as we saw in Daniel 5. The bear has three ribs in its mouth, likely small empires it's already conquered. But its conquest, while great, and even will eventually dominate the region, is not going to be unlimited. Yahweh restrains this beast, commanding it, to rise up and conquer and that's presumably the Persian empire conquering the Babylonian empire as we've already seen in previous chapters. Now the third beast is another hybrid creature if you will which Daniel describes in verse 6 and after this I looked and behold another like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back and the beast had four heads and dominion was given it. Well, as with the bronze or third successive empire of Nebuchadnezzar's vision in Daniel 2, the third creature Daniel sees represents the rise of Alexander the Great and the Greek empire about 330 BC, which is still more than 2 centuries future to the time Daniel's given this vision in writing. And that's a fact that drives critical scholars crazy because they just can't accept the possibility of predictive prophecy. The leopard was a fast attacker, hence the wings. That this is the Greek Empire is clear when we just look at how fast Alexander's rise to power and prominence really was. Alexander attacked the seemingly invincible Persian Empire first in 334, and after a series of well known battles, finally defeated the Persian armies in 330 BC. Alexander's armies captured massive amounts of territory until his own armies had finally had enough and revolted in 324. After just 10 years, Alexander's empire extended from Greece and Egypt all the way over to past the Indus River into what's now India. That's a massive amount of territory, more than any of the preceding empires had occupied. And when Alexander died, ironically, in the city of Babylon at about the age of 32, the empire was then divided among the Ptolemaic and Seleucid kings, perhaps symbolized by the four heads. But more likely, they had their symbolic of Alexander's conquest of this vast amount of territory stretching to the four points on the compass, yet dominated by one man, Alexander. And this beast, too, is given its dominion. Yahweh raised it up for his own sovereign purposes, a matter that we're going to discuss again in visions in chapter 8 and chapters 10 through 12. And it's from the remnants of this empire. That this arch persecutor of the people of God will come, a man we know as Antiochus IV Epiphanes, who will desecrate the rebuilt temple in Jerusalem in 167, and is going to figure prominently in the subsequent chapters as an Antichrist figure, as a picture of what the end times Antichrist will be like. Now the fourth beast Daniel sees is the most frightening of all. After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful, and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. Well, you notice Daniel doesn't compare this beast to any earthly creature. All he says of it is that it's terrifying, that it's dreadful, that it's frightening, that it's strong, it scares him. Now the iron teeth clearly tie this beast directly to the fourth empire of Nebuchadnezzar's vision back in chapter two. That's Rome, its empire, and its emperors. That's still 500 years future to Daniel. The beast conquers all others. It devours them. It tramples on them. But unlike its predecessors, this beast has ten horns, a reference to the fact that it's ten times greater and ten times more powerful than all of its predecessors. And the ten horns, I hate to break it to you, but the ten horns do not refer to ten modern nations that supposedly constitute a revived Roman Empire, as our dispensational friends are apt to tell us. Now in verse 8, Daniel speaks of yet another unique and terrifying characteristic of this beast. I consider the horns. And behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes, like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things, well, a little horn with eyes and a loud mouth, likely making this to a reference, likely making this a reference to a king or its government, it's this little horn that seeks to take authority over the other ten horns, but it's only able to uproot three of them, and so its influence isn 't so much its power but its speech. it says great things. It may well be that this little horn. Claims divine rights and prerogatives for itself. It's but a mere ruler or a nation, yet it acts like it's the creator and ruler of all, when only Yahweh can make that claim, and when only Yahweh's kingdom is everlasting. Now, that becomes much clearer when we compare this beast with John's description in Revelation chapter 13, verses 11 through 18, of what he describes as the second beast from the land. That's the Roman emperor cult which emperors demand and are treated by the people as though they were gods. John's second beast has horns like a lamb. Well, like a lamb means it's imitating Jesus. But it speaks like a dragon. Who's the dragon? Satan, who's the father of lies. And so that ties John's second beast to Daniel's fourth beast, one who wages war on the people of God, who speaks blasphemous things against God, Feudally seeking to defeat the kingdom of Jesus Christ, clearly this is the Roman Empire. Now in verse 9, the visionary scene changes yet again. Seemingly as a divine response to the blasphemous challenge influenced by the little horn and the fear that it brought to Daniel. The imagery which follows is framed in poetic parallelism. Reflected in any modern English translation that placed these verses, or at least should, in stanzas. So the vision which Daniel describes in verses 9 to 10 and again in 13 through 14 of chapter 7 is one of the few passages in all the Bible where we're given even slight glimpses of the heavenly glory of the Ancient of Days and the Son of Man. There is, of course, the scene in Revelation 4 to 5 of our Lord's coronation, after his obedient life as a suffering servant, after his death for our sins, after his triumphal resurrection, after his ascension into heaven. There is the scene of final judgment in Revelation 19 and 20, in addition to that wonderful image of the marriage supper of the Lamb in the first 16 verses of Revelation 19, which we read as our, old, our New Testament lesson. But the heavenly vision in verses 9 to 10 and 13 to 14 of chapter 7 is also remarkably a reenactment of psalm 2 and psalm 110 that speak of yahweh proclaiming of the lord you are my son in psalm 2 and when the lord says to david's lord sit at my right hand psalm 110 these two passages from the psalms are understood by the apostles to refer to jesus's eternal and divine nature and to his coronation and enthronement in the ascension. And so back in Daniel 7, Daniel's vision points us ahead to our Lord's first and second advents, as well as our Lord's reign over all things until the day of final judgment and the day of the recreation of all things. And so in Daniel's vision, the heavenly courts in session, their throne's in place. One of them's for the Ancient of Days. Now, one commentator reminds us of a very basic change before us, but it's easy to overlook. He says the balanced poetry of those verses conveys the order and beauty that surrounds the divine throne as opposed to the chaos of the sea and its beasts. In verses 9 to 10, Daniel tells us, As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him, and 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. Wow. Well, the first question is, who is this Ancient of Days? Calvin very correctly says this is the eternal deity himself ascended to the throne of judgment. The Hebrew means advanced in years, but the context tells us that this figure is eternal in contrast to those four beasts whose existence is very short in comparison. The whiteness of his clothing and hair are symbols of holiness. The vast number, the uncountable number, of those serving him are the hosts of heaven the angels, and the redeemed, the saints. And fire, of course, is symbolic that the Ancient of Days is the judge of all the earth and all its creatures, and that he will destroy all rebellious enemies by fire, including the fourth beast. Well, the second question is, who sits on these thrones next to that throne with, with its wheels of fire? An image found in Ezekiel chapter 1, verses 15 to 21, that throne in connection to God. Well, in Matthew chapter 22, verses 42 through 44, Jesus tells us that in him, Psalm 110 is fulfilled because it's he who occupies one of these thrones. And Jesus is answering a, a snarky trick question put to him by the Pharisees. And he asked them a question, well, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they said to him, the son of David. And he said to them, How is it then that David in the Spirit calls him Lord? In other words, who's my Lord's Lord? Saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit where? At my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. One of these thrones belongs to Jesus. Now in the Gospels, Jesus also says his disciples will sit on thrones and judge with him. According to Matthew 19, verse 28, Jesus said, Truly I say to you in the new world... When the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne. There's another reference to Jesus occupying one of these thrones. You who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. The thrones then are for the Ancient of Days and for the Son of Man and the saints who will rule with him. Now that would have been virtually unintelligible to Daniel before our Lord's Messianic mission and before his inauguration of his kingdom, and before our Lord's death and resurrection. Because it's Jesus who calls us into his kingdom, saving us from the penalty of our sin, which of course is death. And so with the hindsight of redemptive history, from the New Testament looking back at the person and work of Jesus, we know exactly what these things mean. We know to whom this refers, even though this was completely hidden from Daniel. But the vision's interrupted by the blasphemy and the boasting of the little horn. And so in response in verses 11 through 12, Daniel now reveals the fate of these beasts, the fate of these world empires. And I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed, its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season at a time. Each of these successive kingdoms rules as the Ancient of Days wishes, powerless for a time and season until the final judgment. The horn may repeat its proud boasts, drawing Daniel's attention, but when the horn is summoned before the heavenly court, the little horn's fate, along with the beast on which it appears, its fate is sealed. Eternal judgment awaits an image that's expanded and explained for us again in Revelation chapter 19, verse 20. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. Well, after this interruption of the little horn and a preview of the fate, of the beast, along with with the little horn upon which it appears, Daniel's attention shifts back to the heavenly scene and the vision of the Lord of glory. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. His kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Well, the identity of this son of man is no mystery to readers of the New Testament. And although the Hebrew expression can indeed be used of humans, in fact, it is 107 times in the New Testament. As we've seen, Jesus applies that term to himself as an overt reference to his messianic office as that one who comes to reign as the Davidic king promised to Israel and then to the new covenant people of God. The phrase Son of Man used by Jesus speaks to our Lord's incarnation as one who is both true man and true God, and who in his incarnation left the glory that Daniel is seeing in this vision to come to earth to save us from our sins. And it's Jesus who in his messianic office ushered in the kingdom of God that will be consummated on that last day when Jesus returns in judgment, and that kingdom has no end. In several places, in fact, the gospel writers quote or allude to this passage believing that it applies directly to Jesus. Luke 21, 17 says of our Lord's return, which is his second advent that, of course, assumes that he's already proven himself to be the son of man in his first and then they will see the son of man coming in a cloud with power and great glory when he sees someone like a son of man daniel sees the pre-incarnate jesus who will take to himself a true human nature in the womb of the virgin to suffer and die for our sins before being raised from the dead and then ascending into heaven and taking his rightful place on that throne. Now, we shouldn't at all, in light of what we just read, we shouldn't at all be surprised when Daniel states in verse 15, As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious, and the visions of my head alarmed me. The guy's blown away by what he's seen. He's unable to understand much of it. And in verse 16, the prophet tells us, I approached one of those who stood there and asked him about the truth concerning this. And so he told me and made known to me the interpretation of these things. Well, the simple answer given Daniel is the summary we find in verses 17 to 18. These four great beasts are four kings who arise out of the earth. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever and ever. And that answer sets the stage for the balance of the chapter, going back to verses 17 to 28, to which we'll return next time, Lord willing. Well, what application do we take from this just amazing and wonderful vision? Well, many have sought the beatific vision through the years. You know, I want to see God. Show me God. Well, this is one of the few texts in the Bible where we're actually given a glimpse of heaven. The glory that Daniel sees is beyond his comprehension, but one thing's crystal clear. One, like a son of man, has taken his throne, rules over all creation, exercises dominion over all things, and possesses a kingdom that never ends. Daniel saw the figure, but Daniel didn't know who this is, but we do. This is Jesus, seen in his heavenly glory by Daniel. The same Jesus who rules over the kingdoms of this world, even those kingdoms of which Daniel had personal knowledge, Babylon and Persia, and those kingdoms yet to come, Greece and Rome. And what comfort it must have been for Daniel to know that even as he stood in the presence of these great kings and emperors, Nebuchadnezzar, Belshazzar, Cyrus, he knew these men were given temporary dominion by one far greater than they, that one whom Daniel saw, who dwells eternally in the presence of the ancient of days, that one like a son of man. Now, beloved, this son of man is Jesus. This son of man is our Savior and our Redeemer. This son of man is the one whom we worship and serve. This son of man is the one who gave himself for us and even now calls us to believe and trust in him. And this is indeed the same Son of Man who invites us to come to this table and by faith feed on his body and blood, the one who has redeemed us from our sins, that one who is the ancient of days, that one whose kingdom will never end. Amen.